Sales Tuners, Episode 60, Simon Mutlu, Senior Account Executive of Enterprise Accounts at Slack. You know, I think it's important for us to always remember that companies are made up of people and each person is still a person and we need to treat them as such. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Herbert Simon, who said the choices we make lead up to actual experiences. It is one thing to decide to climb a mountain. It is quite another to be on top of it. Joining me today on the show is Simon Mutlu, Senior Account Executive of Enterprise Accounts at Slack, one of the fastest growing companies in the history of SaaS. Simon has been in sales for more than 20 years, selling Cutco Cutlery door-to-door in college before jumping in headfirst to the Silicon Valley movement in 1999. On the personal side of things, he calls himself a mentally questionable runner, having completed 57 marathons, two of which were just this last past weekend. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. You've heard me talk about them for a couple of months now, but you have to check out Costello. It's a deal management platform that aligns frontline sales reps, managers, and VPs so they can work together to consistently close more deals. They help reps get the right deal information from prospects, give reps and managers visibility into the quality of every deal, and help sales leaders understand what's working and what's not. Check it out at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 60. But now let's get to the conversation where Simon talks about his passion to motivate and build teams. In my work in sales leadership, I learned that each person had a different kind of motivation and I needed to kind of key in on that. Some people are motivated by money and some are competitive and some are motivated by pride. For me, I think I like building things. I like building uh, processes and organizations and a movement that you know can help improve something or improve the world. And so that's what motivates me here at Slack is I feel like we're actually changing some of the things that I always hated about working in, in my previous lives. Yeah, for sure. And, and Simon, you and I got connected through a mutual connection, Frank Dale, uh, who's actually the CEO over at Costello, one of the uh, sponsors of the show. But I, I understand you guys climbed Mount Kilimanjaro together. I want to understand, like, how did that actually come to fruition? We talked about it for years, and, and I've known Frank for about 15 years. Uh, we worked together, and uh, this was back before his career far surpassed mine. Um, but he's been a longtime friend, and we talked about it for years. And finally, uh, we just kind of all had an opening in our lives where we could take a couple of weeks to go out to Tanzania together. So we did that in 2013 um, with a couple other friends, and it was still one of the, one of the best experiences of uh, hopefully his life, but certainly mine. It's amazing how those windows of opportunity do present themselves only for like just short periods of time. As you and I talked about, I'm going to, I'm planning to go to Tanzania in January of 2019. And uh, again, it's just, everything's just lining up for that to be, to be possible. So uh, hopefully I have the same experience that the two of you did. So absolutely. Simon, as you know, in this show, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success. And I want to start with where you are today. Talk to me about your sales process. For those who don't know, what is Slack and, and, and why does a typical customer buy from you? A lot of people describe it as an operating system for the working world. So when you think about a large company that has, you know, tens of thousands of employees or even hundreds of employees, 
Um, so they could have you know, a thousand or more apps, uh, applications installed across the company, and they might have a million or more files, and they might have tens of millions of conversations that are going on uh, across the company that are usually stuck in email inboxes and little silos. So what we do is we create one hub where all of that can live in one place, all the conversations, files, apps, workflow integrations, so that people can just be more productive. And it helps uh, you know, cut down on meetings and it cuts down on email traffic and it allows people to do their job faster and more pleasantly and more productively. I'm a big fan of Slack. I've been a user since almost the beginning with one of my startups. But it, it, one of the things that's always been interesting to me is, you know, Google had Wave many, many years ago that kind of was a predecessor to this concept. And and back then, I just completely dismissed it. I'm like, I, I got in, I was very excited to get one of those first initial invites to their beta and all that. And I just couldn't figure it out. I, I said, this doesn't make sense. But fast forward, you know, four years and Slack rolls out and I rolled out to my company, I banned email, I banned internal email. So I'm a big fan of Slack, even though I didn't get Google Wave way back in the day. Yeah, it's amazing how many predecessors there were that had one of the pieces, but yeah. not all of the pieces. And so I, I think, you know, I used a lot of the predecessors as well over the years. I think even among our customer base, um, the, the companies that are flourishing the most are the ones that tie all of their automated workflows and their files and their apps into it instead of just using it as a chat room. Like you said, I mean, there's the, what a thousand apps, something like that now that are integrated to it. I know, you know, we have just here at my company, at least uh, I would say 15 of them integrated. And you're right. I mean, like when we do things in those apps, it just automatically feeds to Slack so that, uh, so that we can kind of see that, but this isn't a commercial uh, for Slack, even though I love it. Uh, talk to me, you haven't always been the person that you are today. So talk to me about how you actually got into sales. You know, I was a college kid. I was uh, looking through the school newspaper, trying to figure out where I wanted to work. I was always the kind of person who, you know, I'm, I'm the son of two Turkish immigrants that are super hardworking. Um, and I, I've just always been willing to take the job that seemed like it was going to be maybe more work, but with uh, better, better rewards. And so I saw this ad for Cutco Cutlery and I thought, well, I, I could go sell knives in people's homes. <laughs> um, and despite everybody telling me I certainly couldn't, um, I was there for four years and I had the opportunity um, after, you know, reaching certain personal sales, uh, you know, levels to open my own office. So the summer of 1998, maybe one of the best summers of my life because I had the opportunity to go and, and open an office in Menlo Park, California, uh, recruited you know, uh, uh, everyone basically. I recruited an assistant manager and a receptionist and then recruited 39 college kids that all sold knives on our team that summer. And we ended up number three out of the 400 offices in average sales per rep. So I learned a lot about you know, training people and you know, tending to them and caring for them and you know, helping them lead themselves, uh, you know, with, with my own coaching. You're going to have to help me out a little bit on this. You, you've shared with me before that, you know, you grew up as kind of a shy kid. So how on earth did you think that you were going to be good at, at going into someone's home and selling them knives? I, I didn't think I was going to be great okay, at it. And, all right. and my parents were nice enough to remind me of that when I uh, did one of my first sales presentations for them a couple days later <laughs> and they didn't buy anything. <laughs> so uh, it was definitely a learning process for me. And I think I've learned that for me particularly, and I would assume there are a lot of people like this that you know listen to your podcast, um, they didn't wake up thinking that they were going to be gregarious salespeople. Um, you know, they, they worked at it and they learned some of the skills that go along with it. And I've always been a big fan of people who do things that are replicable, that we can look at the blueprint of what they did and we can copy it and follow it and succeed as well. 
One of the mantras that I have is great salespeople are made, not born. And that's because you do have to work at this skill to find those things that are replicatable. So speaking of replication, that's something that you've prided yourself on. Uh, how have you been able to do that and, and, and replicate best practices against scaling organizations? And sometimes that's even been distributed employees across the country or even the world. How have you been able to do that? Yeah, so I think a lot of it has to do with just listening, right? The same skills that help uh, a salesperson listen to a customer really well are the same skills that help a sales leader listen to their sales team really well and uh, you know figure out what's working, what's not working. So there's just a lot of you know in-depth conversations and a lot of uh, perception that needs to go into it. I'm the son of a teacher, right? My mom's a teacher, and I've I've always been a big fan of learning. And uh, in my sales career, I've always had to put a lot of devotion into learning. Um, you know, my first foray into tech sales was uh, back in 1999 when the dot-com explosion was going on. And uh, I knew nothing about engineering. I just knew I wanted to be in tech sales. And so because I was uh, making cold calls on the East Coast while living on the West Coast, I was usually one of the first people in the office every morning. And so the first thing I would do before 6 a.m. is I would go to the copy machine uh, and that's where I would be able to find if anyone, any engineers had left any architectural drawings left over or vocabulary words for me, I would go make a copy and I would go try to learn or I would take some engineers out to lunch so that I could ask them all of these words that I didn't understand. And it was a good time for me to learn about you know, routers and switches and all these things that I didn't understand. It's it's amazing to, to just think about that that as an opportunity to grow. But you're right; you were just looking for anything that could allow you to scale that. And, and I read at one point, I, you know, I was reading through some of the stuff you've uh, posted online. At one point, you built a self-hosted intranet, and this was back in the Cutco days on Dreamweaver to share some of that information. What, was that at Cutco, or was that at one of the the first tech startups? Uh, it was a company called What Counts, where I actually had the opportunity to work with Frank Dale. So okay. this was uh, you know 2006, somewhere around that time. I had 11 people on my you know, sales and marketing team. And we lived in, I think, nine different locations for the 11 people. So uh, a lot of people working from home, uh, we, there was no water cooler conversation. There was no ability for us to just shout over a cubicle wall. And so I thought, well, I could just build an intranet. I could probably learn to do some you know, uh, uh, rudimentary web design. And I did. Um, and uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's hilarious because I had this on uh, a, a, pri or a, a public web link that any of our competitors could have just guessed and found. But... Uh, they just, they didn't. Um, and we were sharing our company information for a little while that way. Uh, my dad was a chief information security officer <laughs> oh, for boy. his career. Uh, he definitely would have grounded me if he was <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I did a similar thing. I, you know, I used uh, Tumblr. This was probably back in 2000, I'd say 10 or 11, but I created like a private Tumblr to do just that. Again, it was, it was before the idea. Well, I guess, you know, Microsoft had some of their products out, but, you know, we weren't investing in those at the time. So, but, but what were some of the things that you were sharing? You, you mentioned best practices. And when I look back at those Cutco days, you know, that was like people out in the field, you were still using pagers and stuff, but, but how were you able to gather all that information and, and decipher what was relevant to share and distribute to the entire organization? There were a lot of phone conversations back then. So with 39 people out there in the field, um, you know, making presentations in people's homes, uh, on any given day, anyone could be quitting, right? So Interesting. I needed to have 39 conversations a day. I needed to talk to everybody. And we had a little phrase call it called PDI, personal daily influence. Um, and so with those conversations, I had to take a lot of notes and then share some of the highlights with people but then also have an opportunity to you know, have those conversations about things that were worrisome for people or challenging for people. Um, you know, I think it goes back to you know, Dale Carnegie. Everyone has read um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He talks a lot about um, you know, having those 
positive conversations in public where one could see and hear, and then having those challenging conversations in private. So uh, we would bring people into the office and we would have um, you know, a lot of uh, accolades in public, but those conversations, those 39 conversations a day, uh, I needed to be able to tackle any challenges people were having. You mentioned the the, the need, right, of, of listening both to your customers and obviously to your, your fellow employees. But, you know, you've been a part of the Silicon Valley movement, software, technology, all that. How are you using technology to better listen to your customers or even prospects? Yeah, there's so many different things that are out there right now, right? I think we're we're in a in a period of, of time and, and maybe we'll look back 10 years from now and think that this uh, this was cute that I even said this. But we're at a time now where there, there are more technologies than we could possibly ever use, right? So it's our fault if we're not listening to people well these days, because it just means that we haven't tried. Uh, I think about like one of the things that we do here at Slack is uh, obviously everybody does NPS surveys, right? Net, net promoter score surveys to figure out how people feel about the solution that they're using, that, that you're producing. But we also do customer satisfaction surveys to understand uh, how do people feel about the sales process? How do they feel about the marketing process? Um, is there something that we could improve? And so I think, you know, one of the things that most salespeople never get to understand is how are they being perceived? Um, they only know whether there was a sale or whether there was no sale, and they're making all kinds of assumptions based on that outcome without knowing how they were actually perceived and what they could have improved upon. You're focusing, Simon, on enterprise deals, you know, really big uh, deals for Slack. I don't, I don't know if Oracle was yours. I saw that was a big one recently. Um, but like many, you know, with me specifically, it's a lot of self-procurement. So wh- how are you rolling out Slack into these enormous organizations? There are three kind of groups or, or three stages of evolution that most uh, Slack customers go through. Um, there's the crawling phase um, where you know they may have no Slack usage. Um, maybe they're limping along with email or some you know uh, solution that uh, has one piece of what they need. There's the walking stage where they might have some usage of our freemium version of our solution, um, or they have maybe one business unit that uses Slack, but just you know hasn't grown across the the uh, enterprise much. And then there's the running phase where it's spreading across the organization. Uh, they're getting productivity gains out of it. They're understanding how to automate workflows and just uh, become much more productive together. Um, and so I think each stage gets its own process, its own sales process. You know, there, there's prospecting involved in every one of those stages. Uh, when you think about an organization where there might be 10 or 50 or 100,000 employees, um, it, it means that you actually eventually have to encourage all of those business units. And so uh, there's always another business unit that has not yet been using it or, or not using it to the best of their capability. So I want to throw out multiple things that you just brought up there. So obviously prospecting is one of them. This has been something that's been key to the success in your career. But how do you do that at, at an enterprise level, the size of the companies that you're calling on? How do you even break in the door? Because that's a, it's an animal all in of itself. It, it certainly is. I think, um, you know, it's not unlike what I used to do back in the day, right, where uh, I was selling knives or I was, um, you know, working with uh, companies where one person owned the budget for everything. Um, very similar. I think, you know, some of the other guests you've had on your show have talked about things um, like uh, you know, subject lines and, you know, having emails that have something compelling to say uh, you know, right away. And I, I'm a big fan of that. I spent time in, in email marketing, um, you know, in that industry. Um, I think you need to have something compelling to say early in that email or early in that conversation. Um, and if it's not going to be compelling, if you're, if you're delivering the same message to everybody, you're saying the same thing to everybody, then you might as well not make that call or send that email. I think it's it's important to uh, do prospecting when it's going to add value to that person's life. So are you doing anything, uh, Simon, beyond email prospecting? What are some of the other things that's in your your bag? 
Yeah, so we certainly, we've done regional events where we uh, have some people who are customers along with people who are not not yet customers. Um, we've done, uh, we've just had our, our user conference called Frontiers uh, about a month ago here in San Francisco, where we brought in, you know, more than a thousand people who, who use Slack and, and, you know, partners of ours and uh, people that are evangelists. And so uh, we're really trying to just help people use it better and get more out of the solution. Um, because those, you know, turn into stories that help other companies succeed as well. Now, if I understand correctly, you once sent flowers uh, on Valentine's Day to Telefloral, the, the big public conglomerate, uh, as a way to get in the door. How how'd that go over? And, and how did you even come up with that that idea? Years ago, I worked for a company where, uh, you know, we were up against a competitor for uh, that piece of business. And uh, it was, uh, you know, early February. And I thought, boy, you know, I'm here I am working with a flower company, <laughs> I should be sending them flowers. And so I sent them a, a note and I asked them to be our Valentine. I wouldn't say that the sale there was attributed to that little step, but it helped us stand out as a company. And I, I've always tried to have kind of a, a different uh, take on it. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be more creative in what I do. So uh, one other example, last year um, during the holidays, uh, I was a, a piano performance major in college, so nothing to do with sales. Um, and I haven't been able to use those piano skills in a while. And so I basically put together a CD of piano music, holiday music, and sent a CD to each of my top customers with a handwritten note. Uh, I always do a handwritten note every every holiday season for my top customers. So just try to stand out and be different, be more personable. Um, you know, I think it's important for us to always remember that companies are made up of people and each person is still a person and we need to treat them as such. I, I want to just echo that completely. I think, you know, we see the logo on the outside of the building and, and we and we see the big building of bricks and we just forget that it's human beings that walk in there just like you and I, and they want to be, be made to feel good and they want to be communicated with like another human being. So couldn't agree more with that. And I think we've all been sold to, right? So I think we yeah. know what it feels like to be on both sides of that table. And I think it's important for people to remember who they like to do business with and why, and then try to emulate those behaviors. Now, with the, the size of deals, Simon, that you work on, I'd imagine one of the biggest issues that you have to face uh, inside the organization is change management. So how do you handle that at you know, some of these, like I said, enormous organizations? For some of the companies, I'll actually just fly out and I'll do, uh, you know, we call them lunch and learns or what we call Slack day, where we'll come in and we'll help uh, people understand how to use Slack better. Um, so I've done quite a few of those where I've uh, flown out and spent the day with a company. I've, I've made a couple of games that we can play that, you know, allow different groups of people to compete against other people to, uh, you know, talk about best practices. But not every company understands how change management works and, and you know, gives it as much gravitas as it needs. Um, and I think really at the end of the day, we're trying to help a, a group of people change their behavior to become more productive. That The technology is almost secondary to that. I have a hard enough time trying to convince my wife to get rid of Outlook and move to Google Apps for Business. So I can only imagine with some of these people uh, at the organizations you're dealing with how hard that can be. You and I have that in common, by the way. My wife is also <laughs> an user. <laughs> she, they, they have their folders. They don't want to change. They don't want the web interface. It's just, but you know, it's fine. I've, I've almost given up on it, but uh, maybe one day she'll, she'll see the light. Uh, it, funny enough, uh, speaking of change management, earlier today, you actually shared an article uh, on Twitter. Uh, it was from Harvard Business Review about why startup founders are, who are so good at disruption are so bad at transforming their own companies. Can you talk about the different dynamics that you've seen between you know the enterprise and, and a true startup? Because it's, it's funny, you're almost at a juxtaposition of, you know, startup, one of the fastest growing startups in the history of SaaS, as you, as we said, and you're selling to the enterprise and trying to get them to adopt these new technologies. So can you talk about those dynamics? 
Yeah, it's definitely a, a divergence from my roots um, because I spent you know 15 years building and leading uh, sales organizations for small startups, right? I, I joined a couple of companies where I was employee number 10 or 15 and we never got beyond 100. And so I, I think one thing that I've seen over and over again, and the reason why that particular article um, you know, kind of sparked something in me is because I've seen these startups where you have someone who's a great inventor. They know how to code, they have vision, they have a dream, and they can actually accomplish that. Um, and they can they can build a small team of people that want to code with them and build amazing technology. Uh, but when at some point the company hits reaches an inflection where now it's too big and now they're spending their whole day with human resources matters or, um, you know, I, I remember one founder that was a, just a brilliant technologist, a brilliant inventor spending his whole day with taxes um, for the company. And, and it just became less fun over time. Right. So I think it's an important thing. Uh, and I've seen some some companies where a founder was smart enough to go ahead and hire a CEO so that that founder could then just focus on product development, the thing that he or she loves. And you're right. Do the things that they really are good at as well. And one of the things that stood out from, to me from that article is the founder personality traits combined with the power asymmetry in the organization. Like it's just hard to get over the two of those things because, you know, I was, I was a Marine and I know that sometimes when I said something to my, to my troops, they did it just because of the rank, right? Not because of what I was telling them. So it was a positional authority as opposed to actually having a collaborative conversation and understanding and, and meaning of why. You're absolutely right. It's one of the reasons why I respect uh, Stuart Butterfield, our, our CEO here at Slack so much, because he will sometimes ask a question in a, you know, a populated room. And then when people answer or they nod their heads or they give him something that agrees with what he just said, he'll challenge them and he'll say, you know, you're not just saying that because I'm a CEO, right? Like, I want you to be honest with me. I want this to be a place where we can have a real conversation. And it's something that I've uh, really respected about him. That's fantastic and, and much needed. I mean, to be able to have that conversation, some of the stuff uh, work that I do, um, Simon, in, in sales training, I honestly sometimes become the CEO or the VP of sales's ears for them because the stuff doesn't trickle up to them. They don't get the honest answers of how their SDRs and AEs and all that, how they're actually feeling. So it's, it's just weird how that dynamic starts to happen. Simon, I've got to take a quick break so we can say thank you to our sponsors. But when we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. And sales tuners, you don't go away there. We'll be right back. Pipedrive is the sales CRM built by salespeople for salespeople. I love it because it allows me to visualize my pipeline, highlighting opportunities and potential problems, ensuring I don't drop the important activities and conversations needed. And the managers I work with love it because it's simple and they don't have to nag their team to actually use it. But sales sooners, don't just take my word for it. You can check it out for yourself for free for 30 days at salesooners.com slash pipedrive. We're back and it's time for the money round. Simon, are you ready for the money round? I sure hope so. <laughs> Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? I think that's a little bit assumptive to uh, call myself exceptional, but I think it's been craftsmanship. I think I really spend uh, a little bit of extra time trying to make sure that I do something above and beyond what they would normally expect from someone in my role. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? It's something everybody hates and rolls their eyes about, but role playing really works. And it's a great way to get feedback and get better at something quickly. Which phrase describes you best and why I love to win or I hate to lose? You know, I know this will buck the trend a little bit, but I think uh, most successful people I know get really good at losing quickly and failing uh, and, and iterating quickly and learning how to uh, have losing and failure be a, a big part of the process. So I think it's more about loving to win. 
what's a book, Simon, that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Yeah, this is a tough one because I'm a big nerd when it comes to uh, both podcasts and audiobooks. I have a long commute and I knock them out probably one one book a week. Um, but Charles Duhigg's work, uh, certainly Smarter, Faster, Better, which is the newer of his books, is a great study in what makes teams really, really collaborate well. Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Simon's recommendation of Smarter, Faster, Better for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. Simon, what's currently at the top of your bucket list? I want to travel more. Uh, you know, we talked about Frank Dale and how we went to uh, Mount Kilimanjaro a couple of years ago. Uh, we've been talking about maybe going to New Zealand. So that's something I'd love to be able to do sometime soon. Simon, what's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? I think getting feedback from your customers, understanding how you're being perceived, and, and maybe they won't be perfectly candid with you if you ask them point blank, um, but having some kind of survey process or having maybe a leader from your team ask that question for you is a great way to understand how you can get better or what you're doing well. I'm going to get you out of here on this one. How could someone find you or connect with you if they wanted to after the show? Feel free to find me on Twitter at Simon Mutlu, which is uh, Simon, S-I-M-O-N, and then Mutlu, M-U-T-L-U, or the same name on LinkedIn. Simon, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for joining me. Likewise. Thank you, Jim. I really enjoyed the journey back in time, talking about payphones, pagers, and building sites in Dreamweaver. It's easy to see why Simon has had the success he's had with his relentless appetite for listening and building systems. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, create replicable processes. The best ways I've learned to master concepts are to write them down first and then to teach them. Doing both of these naturally force the ability for the process to be replicable. Once it can be replicated, it can be measured. And once it can be measured, it can be improved. Number two, add value in every outreach. If your calls, emails, or social posts aren't adding value to a prospect's life, why even do it? Put yourself in their shoes, assuming they're inundated with messages. Figure out how to make your point succinctly with a clear message of implied value. Number three, ask customers how you could have improved their buying experience. Most companies do some version of NPS surveys or net promoter score to learn what customers think about using their product. But when was the last time you asked your customers what you could have done differently in the sales process? For a lot of sales reps, the only feedback we ever get is whether or not we won or lost the deal, which frankly doesn't help us get any better. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there. And they stay there. Why do people never say it's only a game when they're winning?